Hello there. You're listening to the audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine with myself, Derek Thorne. In this programme, malaria drugs for school children in Kenya provide benefits for their health and also potentially their grades, how to market lifestyle changes, including giving up smoking, and the nurse who inspired Band-Aid talks about her life and work as she receives an honorary doctorate. First, though, let's turn our attention to northern Uganda, where a 20-year conflict between government troops and the Lord's Resistance Army has forced up to 2 million people to leave their homes. New research has found that the prevalence of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder in this region is among the highest found anywhere in the world. In a project run jointly by Gulu University in northern Uganda and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, researchers did a survey to investigate the mental effects of this conflict among 1,200 internally displaced people. With the results, here's Bayard Roberts. The key findings were extremely high levels of of mental distress, with over two-thirds of the population um, experiencing what could be characterised as depression or exhibiting signs of depression, over half the population exhibiting signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, which are amongst the highest recorded anywhere in the world, using similar types of instruments and similar methodologies. Um, We also recorded extremely high rates of exposure to trauma, Um, This could be violent acts such as uh, abductions, such as murder of families and uh, friends, or rape and sexual abuse. And it can also be trauma in the sense of not having access to essential medical and health services or food. And what we also found, which hasn't really been recorded anywhere else, is that uh, over half of these traumatic events that were recorded actually took place when the respondents were living in the camps. And these camps were set up by the government to protect the civilians and clearly there have been large deficiencies in the government's ability to do this and so really a strong message from the study is that the government and uh, humanitarian agencies and NGOs given the resources can do more to prevent future exposure to trauma taking place and therefore help reduce rates of depression and uh, particularly uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, We'll come on to some further implications in a moment and some practical implications, but I was also interested in the kind of associated variables that were associated with high levels of um, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. One of of those, for example, was um, gender, but there were others as well. So tell me more about what you found there. Yeah, with with gender, uh, women reported significantly higher rates of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder than men. Uh, And this is consistent with studies of other with the findings of other studies of similar populations where women generally record higher rates of mental distress than men. And this is despite the fact that in our study, men generally had exposure to higher rates of trauma. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the findings from this study corroborate other studies and really suggest that if psychosocial interventions are going to take place in northern Uganda, certainly women need to be targeted. Now, You've talked there about the kind of impact that NGOs, governments and so on could try and make here because clearly there is a need. How easy is that going to be, though? Because obviously this is a very culturally particular situation, just like any similar situation would be. I mean, who's going to be responsible for this? Who can make a difference here? I think it involves multiple actors. NGOs are already doing a vast amount in providing essential services to um, the internally displaced persons in these camps. Um, with the support of UN, there's also existing government services. 
However, there's not a huge amount taking place with regards to mental health or psychosocial health. The medical faculty at Gulu University uh, are running some services, um, but clearly more needs to be done. But I think it's also, with a population of this size, when we're talking over a million people that are displaced, it would be extremely hard to roll out a mental health programme. And it, it would need to operate within the existing health system. But it also, what's also required is, is preventative efforts to address some of the key factors that did influence post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. For example, lack of access to basic health services um, or other basic needs of food, water, sanitation and so on. And, and these are issues that the government, the UN and NGOs need to address together. And they could have a significant influence upon reducing rates of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Um, perhaps most significant of all is is improving the security situation in northern Uganda so people are able to access their lands um, for farming, for income from farming and also the, um, the sense of fulfilment and meaning that comes with farming their own lands. And ultimately what's, what is required is, is a peace settlement and for people to return to their home areas free from uh, violence, th- free from the threat of violence. And this would obviously have a major bearing upon improving mental health. That was Bayard Roberts of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talking about research done in collaboration with Gulu University in northern Uganda. Now, a fascinating new study published in The Lancet has shown that schoolchildren are healthier and their attention span in the classroom is better when they receive anti-malarial drugs three times a year, and that's whether or not they have the symptoms. This study was done among schoolchildren in Kenya, and to find out more, Peter Goodwin spoke to lead author Sean Clark. We undertook a cluster-randomised placebo-controlled trial in 30 primary schools in western Kenya, Fifteen of the schools in the intervention arm received a, a dual intervention of sulfadoxine pyrimethamine combined with amadarquin, and the other 15 schools received a dual placebo. Now, the way you gave this treatment was particularly easy. It was just a, a single treatment three times a year, is that it? We gave the treatment on three occasions in the year, once each term, and the treatment consisted of th- three days of treatment. Um, sulfadoxin pyrimethamine on the first day and amadarquin and then two subsequent treatments on the following two days of amadarquin. Now let me get this right. The treatment was the same malaria treatment that you would give a child if the child actually had malaria, but in fact you gave it to all of the children. It was a full treatment dose, irrespective of whether the children were infected or not. Mm. And the groups, of course, were equally divided into placebo and active uh, groups. So what happened? We examined the children again after 12 months and found that the frequency of malaria infections had dramatically reduced by about 90% from 40% down to less than 5% of the children being infected with malaria parasites. The frequency of anemia had reduced by half and we found that the ability of children to pay attention in class was significantly improved amongst those that had received the intervention compared to those that had received the placebo treatment. Now, the benefits in terms of anemia and malaria infection may or not be relevant, though, but the paying attention in class presumably was considered to be very relevant. It's probably that last finding which is of the greatest interest, because although it's been suspected that malaria might affect school performance, the study provides the first strong evidence of that link. 
Sean Clark from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talking about intermittent preventive treatment, or IPT, for malaria. And she reckons this could soon be recommended along with other preventive measures, such as treated bed nets. A report recently released by WaterAid and featuring input from researchers at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has concluded that improving sanitation is the most cost-effective way to reduce child mortality in the developing world. But it also says that it's a neglected area, especially considering the wide-ranging benefits that it could bring. The report, which was unveiled at the G8 summit in Japan, defines sanitation as the improved disposal of excreta, as well as better hygienic practices such as hand-washing with soap. I got more on these relatively simple interventions from Sandy Cairncross, who is Professor of Environmental Health at the London School, and I began by asking him what he thought the main messages of the report were. The first message is that sanitation, and sanitation in the broader sense, including hygiene promotion, needs to be taken seriously as a major intervention to improve the health of the developing world. Hygiene promotion particularly is the most cost-effective of all major interventions against high burden diseases, according to studies by the World Bank. And yet it tends to get neglected. The health sector tends to think that sanitation is a job for the water ministry. The water ministry thinks it's a job for the local municipality. The municipality hasn't got the resources to do anything. So it tends to get forgotten. And the importance of taking it seriously, and particularly for the health sector to take it seriously, is a really important message here. Now, you talked about cost effectiveness there. So let's go into that a bit. That must mean, if it is a very cost-effective intervention, that it it must be um, affecting lots of different areas of health and, and, and saving lives in many ways. So how is it that improved sanitation can have an impact on mortality and child mortality and so on? It can work in several ways. It can work by directly by preventing diarrhoea and the deaths associated with that. And this report uses a figure of 1.6 million deaths a year due to diarrhoea. Other deaths are prevented when diarrhoea is prevented and through it malnutrition is reduced because children who are malnourished and malnutrition is made worse by diarrhoea. Children who are malnourished are more likely to die from common diseases whether it's measles or pneumonia or just respiratory infections that would give a child in the developed world a small cough. And thirdly, there are impacts on respiratory infections. It's an exciting area of research and we don't know very much about it. There's only been one study done in the developing world, but in many studies in the developed world, among children, among adults, we found that improved hygiene, and particularly hand washing with soap, reduces the impact of respiratory infections, coughs and colds and flu. Even among healthy adults, like recruits to the United States Navy, it was found that promoting hand-washing reduced absenteeism due to colds and flu by about 40%. So the big question is, what works on strapping healthy adult Americans, trainee sailors, is that going to work among malnourished, under-five poor children in a place like, say, Karachi, Pakistan? Well, one person did a trial and found that it had an even greater effect on those children. There are problems with the methodology of the trial. We need to do more. But the evidence suggests there is some impact there. And if we could, with one stroke, improved hygiene and sanitation, affect not only diarrheal disease but also respiratory disease, we'd be attacking the two most serious killers of children in the developing world. 
looking to the future, what, what do you think needs to happen soon or needs to happen now, really, for, for this impact to occur, for us to kind of get these benefits working? Well, I think that ministries of health have a role to play in three ways. Through advocacy and leading the push to get other ministries and utilities and other agencies to act in terms of promoting hygiene and sanitation. Secondly, in promotion, so directly promoting behaviour change themselves, promoting sanitation, facilitating the marketing of sanitation by the informal sector because it's small-time masons, often illiterate, often people who've spent much of their time evading government regulation, who are really providing the service that the poor have. So insofar as a couple of billion poor people in the developing world do have some kind of sanitation, they have it not usually thanks to the government, but thanks to their own efforts, their own investment, and the work of these small businesses. And there's a real need for the health sector and other sectors to put resources into working with the market and not trying to work against the market by providing free or subsidized latrines directly with government seals of approval on them. And finally, the third area is in terms of regulation. In many countries, you'll find that local authorities bulldoze pit latrines because they're not allowed. So making regulations more favorable to promote sanitation and hygiene is one thing. I mean, why is it that developing world governments all over the developing world tax soap when soap is clearly a public health good? So advocacy, promotion and regulation are three really important roles. That was Sandy Cairncross of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, news of an honorary degree for the nurse who appeared in BBC correspondent Michael Burke's key news report about the Ethiopian famine in 1984. Claire Birchinger was a Red Cross nurse running feeding centres in Ethiopia in that year. And as the situation worsened, she could in no way deal with the increasing need for food. She was the main character in the BBC's report, which ultimately inspired musicians, including Bob Geldof, to set up Band-Aid and Live Aid. She has done much else besides, though, working in over a dozen other countries, writing a book about her experiences, and becoming the director of the Diploma in Tropical Nursing at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, Brunel University, which is where she studied in the 90s, is making her an honorary doctor of social sciences. Peter Goodwin spoke to Claire just recently and began by asking what this degree means to her. Well, I was quite shocked by receiving it. Yes, it's a great honour. I got a doctorate from Brunel University and I did my Master's in Medical Anthropology at Brunel and that was back in the mid-90s. And just out of the blue, they offered me a a doctorate. So um, I'm very honoured to receive that. Now, this came out of basically a lifetime of work in an extraordinary area of work as a nurse. Can you tell me how you got into this? Because I'm sure a lot of other people would like to do even a fraction of what you have done. How did you start out in nursing and how did you find yourself in the developing world? Well, I've always wanted to be a nurse. It's very, um, even when I was a child, I knew I wanted to be a nurse and I knew I wanted to work in Africa. That was my dream. And I remember bandaging my teddies and saying that's what I was going to do. Um, I wasn't very good at school. In fact, I was always bottom of the class. But I, I just wanted to do nursing. And although I wasn't the best in the class, I, I, um, I decided to do nursing and got into do nursing. I got into do, um, I first worked on expeditions called Operation Drake, 
which was the forerunner of Rally International. And I worked in Panama, Papua New Guinea and Sulawesi, Indonesia as a nurse in the tropical rainforest. Can you bring me up to date? Because you were basically world famous because of an interview you did on television which enlightened the world to what was happening in Ethiopia. Uh, How did you get into that sort of work? I uh, I applied to join the International Committee of the Red Cross. In fact, the British Red Cross turned me down because I wasn't a midwife. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? Uh, Another post I had to go to Thailand uh, to work in a refugee camp. The camp was um, bombed at the last minute and so I found myself with no work. So when this camp was bombed, I had nothing to do. So I got a two-week pass on the trains to travel around Europe with a New Zealand friend and found ourselves sleeping on the floor of some relatives in Switzerland. And they suggested I apply to the International Committee of the Red Cross in Switzerland because I have dual Swiss-British nationality. And they rang up, made the appointment for me to have my interview. Uh, and during and I got one for a week's time. And during that week, I learnt parrot fashion, um, several phrases in French to get me through the interview. I also had to borrow a skirt and a nice white blouse to look a little bit presentable because I only had sort of hitchhiking clothes on. And uh, a month later, I found myself in Lebanon. I've got to ask you, though, why did you go to work in such difficult environments? It was a challenge. I, I enjoy challenges in life. And I give the best of myself when I'm faced with a challenge. And my life as a child, I lived in the country. We often, um, we always camped out as children. And for fun, we camped out in the garden and in the woods. And our holidays were spent travelling through Europe and as families slept under the stars. So it wasn't, for me, it wasn't difficult. It was actually something I enjoyed. I found I did um, trauma work well compared with ward work as a nurse. Now, because you were able, as a nurse, to give publicity to a terrible situation in Ethiopia, you've been able to make a difference in the world, basically. What would you say to other young people who want to do this sort of work, may want to become nurses? Is it really possible to make a difference? Absolutely. We all can make a difference. And you don't have to be a nurse on the front line to make a difference. Oh, 25 years ago, when I was in Ethiopia, I was in an extremely remote area. There was a war going on. There was no means of communication, no telephones, no radios, um, and, and any letters took weeks to get through. So when the BBC film crew arrived and started interviewing me about my situation, I didn't dream, I didn't have no inclination that I would make a difference. And it took 20 years before I realised that it was my interview that... That, my, that Bob Geldof saw and said nobody should ever be put in a position where they have to select who could and couldn't come into the feeding centre, who lived and died, actually, that's what it was about. So we must never underestimate that we can make a difference, however small it is. And it might be in your local environment. It doesn't have to be abroad. Now, you're working, you have been associated with the Red Cross, the International Red Cross, which is an apolitical body. What is your attitude towards conflict? Because it's going on all over the world. Yes, I've had over 10 years working for the International Committee of the Red Cross in war zones such as Afghanistan, Lebanon, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and a dozen more. And from my experience, I realise that war is wrong. There are no winners in war ever. Because technology has changed hugely in the recent past, hasn't it? We now have what's sometimes called the global village because of things like the internet and email. What are your feelings about all of that? 
Yes, technology has made the world smaller and technology has made the world, made us all neighbours. But technology can't do the really important thing, which is to give us back that village mentality that we used to have. And that's where I believe we really should transcend our differences and make humanity, not economics, our highest priority in life. It is, of course, extremely lucky for all of us here associated with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that you're working here. What are you trying to do now? Now I I organise and run the Diploma in Tropical Nursing. So every year I have 130 fully trained, qualified nurses, everything from just qualified to just retiring. And the vast majority of those will go out and work in resource parts of the world as nurses, and they themselves will train another 100 nurses. So we're supporting. My work now, I feel, is more important than when I worked in the front line as a Red Cross nurse, because I can train so many, and they in turn will go out and help people to help themselves. The majority of people in the developing world die from diseases that can be prevented. It's like malaria, measles, diarrheal disease, chest infections. And it's the nurses on the ground that will help prevent those, not the doctors. Claire Birchinger, who is the Director of the Diploma in Tropical Nursing at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Next in audio news, how is health marketed and can it be marketed in a way that will help keep everyone alive longer? A new book written by an academic at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine looks at this question and uses the battle against smoking as an example of how to tackle a public health issue. The book is called Marketing Health, Smoking and the Discourse of Public Health in Britain. And as Peter Goodwin heard from the author, Virginia Berridge, in countries such as Britain, there have been definite changes of attitude towards smoking. I think, in fact, there's been a huge change in in public habits over the last 50 years. If you look, for example, at films from the 1940s or the 1950s, almost invariably uh, people will be smoking, uh, you'll see um, photographs of leading politicians of the time and they've got they've got a cigarette in their in their hands I don't think any leading politician nowadays even if they did actually smoke would act, would want to be seen in public smoking or would want to have that on their election address or their election literature it wouldn't be seen as a plus anymore I think at the beginning of the 1950s Richard Dole and Bradford Hill both from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine published a huge study showing a strong association between smoking and bronchial carcinoma. Over the years this has become so strong that it's now taken as conclusive evidence that cigarettes cause lung cancer, they also cause an awful lot of other diseases. What has happened though? Why was it so difficult? Because you're talking about marketing health in your book. Why was it so difficult to get this message over to the public? Well, I think there was a general kind of wariness about what um, Doll and Hill were saying anyway, because within um, within medicine and also within government, people were used to a different sort of proof. They were used to a laboratory experiment uh, that definitely proved something. They weren't used to this rather wishy-washy kind of association between two different factors. They weren't used to the sort of epidemiological concepts of risk and 
odds ratio and so on, the sort of things that everyone you know, uses every day within public health now. And of course, people so, used to say there were lies, damn lies and statistics. Yes, yeah, so statistical proof wasn't seen as, uh, you know, people didn't really know what sort of proof it was, what it meant. So there was that general kind of uh, lack of understanding at that point. And then I think there was another point, which was that... Uh, doctors and scientists at that point really didn't see themselves as needing to reach out either to the public or to policy makers. The whole notion of kind of evidence-based policy that we talk about so much nowadays really didn't exist in the same way at that time. And um, Bradford Hill himself said it wasn't his business to advise government on what they should do with this evidence. It was much more an issue for the chief medical officer working in the Ministry of Health to do that. And Bradford Hill used to have a box of cigarettes in his room to offer visitors. Yes, I think that this this is an interesting cultural point, um, that cigarettes are very much part of the culture of society at all sorts of levels at, the, at, at this period. So people like Hill would see nothing uh, kind of incongruous about producing re- research that showed that there were health uh, there were health effects in this way, but also continuing to offer cigarettes to, to visitors in, in his office. But in the book, you talk about the marketing of health. And in fact, there was a change after the 1950s in how health was marketed to the public. Can you explain to me what that change was and how it has become more effective? Well, I think um, people began to, doctors began to change their view and scientists began to change their view about speaking to the public. Instead of just speaking to each other, um, they decided that they needed to reach out to the public and speak to the public much more. Um, Doctors within public health had traditionally done that, but they'd done it through kind of quite small scale measures, things like local health weeks or poster publicity or group discussions and things like that. But in the 1950s, things began to change. The mass media start to come on the scene, Uh, radio, television, uh, mass advertising. And those were seen as very modern, uh, the route which should be followed. So people like Jerry Morris, for example, uh, were giving radio talks in the 1950s and were urging other members of the public health profession uh, to actually use the media more to reach out to the public and speak to them. And there was a growing respect for psychological approaches using good psychology to get a health message over rather than purely giving information to the public. Yes, I think there was a big change here between a kind of wartime sort of approach, some of the early publicity around smoking, the early health education materials, basically set out the information about risk and then say, well, look, it's up to you. Make up your mind on the basis of this information that we've supplied. But later on, I think there's a more uh, sophisticated approach develops and one which is also giving a much stronger message about giving up. Um, And that was very much drawing on the tools of of psychology uh, and also the um, more commercial tools, sort of market research, evaluation of campaigns, all the sorts of things that we take for granted now, uh, which, which were starting to come in in the 1960s and the 1970s.
Okay, well, we've learned a lot, and that goes for Great Britain and many, many other countries. Um, But what is there still to do? Are you complacent now? Because there are health risks all around us still, aren't there? Well, I think as far as smoking is is concerned, um, uh, people have been saying since the smoking ban, what is the left to do? And many of the people in the smoking field are now not looking so much in the UK, they're looking much more internationally. And there's been a particular focus, for example, on countries like China, uh, where where smoking is still uh, on the increase. So I think there's, there's much more of an international stage in relation to smoking now. And it could change from looking at smoking to looking at eating, because there's a, an epidemic of obesity all over the world, isn't there? Well, of course, that's that's another area that people have started to talk about much more in the sense smoking, maybe smoking has been resolved to some extent as an issue. And people are now looking at things like eating, they're looking at alcohol, of course, as well. And trying. there's been some attempt to try and learn from the model of smoking to see what people should be doing about other public health issues. Are we moving, though, towards a sort of nanny state that none of us really want? Because, after all, we're all very intelligent. We can decide what to eat, what to smoke or whether to smoke, surely. Well, that's been a debate that's um, really, well, it's been going on since uh, the earliest days of public health in the 19th century when uh, the Times said that it would rather take its chance with cholera than be bullied into health. So the nanny state argument is really nothing new. It was a particular concern of politicians in the 1950s when the smoking issue first came into view. Uh, People were saying, you know, politicians like Macmillan, Rab Butler and so on, uh, were saying, well, is this really a proper role for government to actually tell the population what to do about its lifestyle? Particularly when these are, are problems that may not... Um, happen, they may never happen, Uh, the individual may not get lung cancer, or if that individual does, it may not be for another 20 or 30 years. Is it really appropriate for government to have a role in, in those sorts of areas? I think government now very definitely does have a role. That's been the huge change of the last 50 years, and it's difficult to see it drawing back from from that role in the future. Where does all of this leave healthcare professionals? Because surely they are at the focus of some of this, leading the way, giving correct information. Uh, Has enough now been done in the marketing? Does everybody automatically know how to market health policies? Or what messages would you give them? Interestingly, I think a few years ago, nobody would have conceived of having a smoking ban, which is a really very, quite a punitive sort of approach to policymaking in this area. The focus had been very much on changing individual behaviour. Now we've got a kind of regulatory approach, uh, which is collectively forcing people to change their behaviour in certain environments. And I think that's a very interesting stage, a a new stage of of public health, uh, which will also need to be evaluated. Virginia Berridge speaking there, who is Professor of History at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she was talking with Peter Goodwin. So that's it for this edition of Audio News, but we'll have more next month. So until then, from me, Derek Thorne, goodbye.